Hey, what's up, everyone? You've reached, luckily for you, the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are very happy that you've decided to join us for your early morning commute um, or your post-work commute back home um, or your evening under the nice subtle bubbles in your bathtub, the glass of white Zinfandel. And what are they listening to? Oh, either uh, Bolton, Michael Bolton, or Kenny G. Those are the only two options. We will not allow any other um, because it's very restrictive on this show. And speaking of heavy restrictions... Uh, we're actually going to be talking about a system of government that's highly restrictive, and that would be socialism. Anyways, but before we get started on that, we want to launch into our book recommendations, our favorite part of every show. Alan, I know you're incredibly excited about this. You continue to text me on a daily basis saying, I am going through my entire library looking for the perfect book for all of our wonderful listeners. And you know what? I really appreciate your enthusiasm for doing such uh, research into this topic. Wow, it's getting a little sick in here, don't you think? (laughs) That's up for you. Never mind, man. I'm going to go there. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, no. We almost had to restart this show. Here we go. I'm going to start with my book recommendations. I'm going to start with my nonfiction. Um, this oh, one, please do. Yes, let's. Uh, this one is one that I read last year. I actually heard, I'd never heard about it. Um, of course, there are a lot of books out there I've never heard of. Um, but I was listening to a, um, it was either a podcast episode or it was a YouTube video of Ravi Zacharias, who's a Christian apologist. Um, and philosopher, and he referenced this book, The Roots of American Order by Russell Kirk. Now, I don't know if you've ever read it, but this book is really, it really is, um, really is insightful. I almost went with mind-blowing, but it's very insightful, and it gives the, the basis of American order and how our roots come from four different countries really, or four different cities, however you want to put it. Um, It would be, well, yeah, it's four different cities. It's Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and London. And that's where the basis of our um, foundation uh, stems from. And it gives a ton of uh, just all this information and and from all of these people in all of those societies over the past 2,000 years. But if you want to throw Jerusalem in there, obviously that's going to go um, a bit longer back. In time, but uh, readers, I really encourage you to to read this book. It's it's a it's a it's a thick book, um, but it feels it it reads very fast. There are a couple of sections in there, probably a couple of chapters that I noticed that had some, they were pretty slow chapters. Um, but such is history. Uh, sometimes there are lulls in history that are not as interesting as uh, other centuries. So um, my fiction piece. Um, is actually authored by one of my personal favorite authors. Um, 
His name is Dustin Bass. Um, he is an incredible writer. Um, God bless his heart. Um, I don't know if he's still around. I don't know if he's still writing. Uh, I hope he is. Hope he's working on a new project. But he has a book that came out in 2014 called Fight. And it's something that you guys should check out. It's a fun read. Uh, real shoot 'em up. And in the same vein of if you've ever read or watched the movie Sin City, it has that same vibe. So yeah, I don't, go think, check I don't it out. think he's a, I don't think he's alive. I was listening to a uh, a Beatles song backwards, and I heard Bass is dead. Bass is dead. Miss him. Miss him. Oh, well. Uh, God rest his soul. Let his work live on. Yeah, he was all right, I guess. Fantastic. All right, Alan, your your choices, <laughs> please. All right, mine. Okay. Now, the nonfiction book is actually a book I am currently reading by an author, and I can never pronounce his name. It's a very French name. It looks like it would be Hillary Bullock if it was in English, but it's like Hilaire Belloc or Belloc or something like that. Mm -hmm. He is a French-English Catholic apologist. I actually visited his, uh, uh, the cemetery, I I visited his graveyard, or his grave at a cemetery in Paris, uh, same one that has uh, Jim Morrison in it. Oh, the singer. Singer, yep. uh... Yep, They're in the the same uh, cemetery, and I can't remember the name of it. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Frédéric Chopin is in the same cemetery. So if you're ever in Paris, it's definitely a lot of famous people. Did you say, how Uh, did you say his name, Chopin? What did you say? I said uh, Frédéric Chopin, Chopin, the pianist. Chopin. Chopin, what did I say? I always say Chopin. Chopin, Chopin, I've heard heard both. Yeah, I guess so. Chopin. Yeah, but Frederick Chopin is like, uh, it's, it's his. It's like Chopin. It's Schroeder's. Uh, Schroeder is one of two favorite uh, artists from uh, the Peanuts gang. When yes. He plays his little yeah, piano, yeah. He, he'll he'll yeah. play that every once in a while. Frederick Chopin's yeah. Nocturnes are probably. It's probably some of my favorite music I've ever listened to. I I, I love it. Every once in a while, I'll just listen to the whole thing. Great stuff. Well, if you ever. If you ever want to go visit his grave, yep, uh, Jim Morrison's there, Hilaire Bullock, and, and then the, the, the two famous lovers, uh, Helen and, or Eloise or something like that, they're also... Thelma and Eloise? Eloise? Hel- Hel- Eloise and Abelard, I think is what they're called. Oh, okay. I thought you meant Thelma and Louise, my bad. No, 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 no. I think it's Eloise and El- Abelard. They were uh, famous love. They were famous lovers in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, one was a student, the pupil. The other was the teacher, and it was kind of a big scandal. Hmm. But yep, they're also buried there. Anyway, so uh, back to the book. Okay, the book that he I've written a couple. Uh, I've read some of his books, but this one that I'm reading right now is called Europe and the Faith. His premise is that Rome never collapsed. Rome was kind of, uh, the central government collapsed, but the Roman system stayed in place. The generals, the, the, even though they were of barbaric descent, 
the generals were still Roman generals. And they took over the, the territories, the provinces, that once were ruled by the, by the imperial system based out of Rome. Uh, they kept the system in place. Feudalism was born of the system that was in place. Because, you know, you had these very wealthy men, and dependent on these very wealthy men were uh, free men and slaves. So you had the feudal system was created, and out of that feudal system, uh, later on in the, um, in the medieval period, you had the kings, and the dukes, and the earls, and all the other... Uh, different, uh, like, you know, like principalities and whatnot that we have today that's in Europe. Now, um, he does mention that, yes, Rome, the Roman system was then run out of Constantinople, which was destroyed in uh, 1453 by the Turks, but by then the governmental systems that were born of the Roman Empire were in place, and you had your, your kingdoms, you know, French, the English, um, the Holy Roman Empire, um, uh, the Germanic uh, Habsburgs, all, all the different systems were already in place by the time Constantinople was, was captured and sacked by the Turks. And what he was saying is, is that the Catholic system uh, was what stayed in place the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that Europe, Europe can, can thank it's a system because of the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, very detailed, uh, very persuasive in his, uh, in his argument. He, he mentioned some of the specific generals who then became kings, as well as the barbarian generals that attacked Rome or sacked Rome, like, such as Alaric. What he points out was that this was not a barbarian, an external barbarian invasion, but that these generals were, although they were barbarian, they were also uh, within the Roman system, and they saw themselves as Roman, even though they were of barbarian descent. So it's a pretty interesting, it's a pretty interesting book stating that Rome never really was destroyed, the system was never destroyed, and it was never externally invaded and conquered by a barbarian system. Very interesting. Yep. All right. All right. Next is the fiction, which is uh, The Voyage of Argo by Apollonius of Rhodes. Now, this was written in the 3rd century B.C., uh, long after Homer uh, supposedly wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, Now, what this is about, now, this takes place a generation before the Trojan War, because many of the characters in this book their sons fought at Troy. Uh, Jason is the lead character. Uh, he he is uh, basically proclaiming himself that he should be the king because he is the descendant of the former king of Argus. Um, but he is tasked to get the golden fleece. If he wants to, if he wants to retain his, if he wants to become the king, he has to go get the golden fleece, which is in the uh, Black Sea region. Uh, so he basically calls out to uh, all the Greeks at the time, who wants to go with me on a journey to go capture the Golden Fleece? So uh, the father of Achilles, whose name is Peleus, he joins. The father of Ajax, his, uh, they were brothers. Um, 
uh, Telamon, the father of Ajax, and Peleus, the father of Achilles. They were brothers. So Ajax and, as you know, reading the Iliad, Ajax and Achilles were cousins. Uh, they went on the voyage. Orpheus uh, was was on the voyage. Heracles, also known as Hercules, was on the voyage. Uh, the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux, were they went on board. And out there, there was room that Atalanta, the, faint, the swift female runner, was on there. But some stories state that she was on the voyage. Others do not. So you can kind of pick and choose whether you want to say that she was she was on that voyage. And you know they they go uh, they they face a lot of trials, tribulations, make their way to uh, the land up in I think it's called Colchis. And it's it's kind of where the country of Georgia is, European Georgia. Okay. And they get the Golden Fleece, and uh, Medea, the daughter of the king, falls in love with Jason, and she helps him. And you've got some of the you have some of the Greek gods and goddesses who also participate in this voyage. It's a, it's very entertaining. There, they've had a couple of movies based on that book called Jason and the Argonauts. So uh, Achilles has a little cameo in the book, also. Uh, little, little baby Achilles. Baby Achilles. Baby Achilles. He he makes a little uh, cameo. So um, yeah, definitely uh, definitely worth reading. It's a very entertaining book. Very cool. I don't know if anybody needs to go and read those books now because I feel like I've I've set through both both stories now um how is it that i can go through two books in three minutes and you take nine well because i'm more detailed i'm actually <laughs> heavily detailed <laughs> you say uh, well I, I like those books they're, they're, they're interesting I, I i do have to say the belloc book was more informative but the uh the apollonius book was more entertaining of course hence the difference between fiction and non-fiction that is correct. All right, man. Let's go ahead and get started with this uh, episode. We are going to be discussing socialism. Ladies and gentlemen, socialism has been thrown around here lately, as it always uh, typically does rear its head um, every so often. It seems like it really rears its head every about 50 years, every 30 years, somewhere in there where it's, I mean, it's always underlying under the surface there, but um, you see a massive resurgence that comes up every once in a while. You see it at the turn of, you know, this turn of the century. You see it in the in the twenties and, and thirties, and then you see it in the seventies and the sixties, uh, or sixties and seventies, and then you see it now. Um, right now, we're in the middle of a resurgence of socialism as a massive topic, um, and socialism is being put under the guise of hey it's um it's free stuff for everybody but socialism defined um correctly is really the control of the means of production and so that's the that's the more accurate uh definition of just exactly what it is now if you look online uh if you just like google the definition of socialism uh, it puts it in a little more kinder terms. It says a political and economic theory of social organization, which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by. Now, all that is accurate, 
until we get to this part, regulated by the community as a whole. And that's where things sort of sort of fall off the rails when it comes to defining it. Um, because really, when you say it's owned and regulated by the community, it's not uh, owned and regulated by the community. It's owned and regulated by the government, um, which is a representative body of the community. But everything has to flow through the community, uh, community slash government. Um, what are your what's your more or less definition, Alan, on socialism? I consider socialism the uh, the next step or the it's the next step towards communism. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, you know there was a, there was an American who uh, ran on the socialist ticket. Uh, actually, he ran from prison. He was in prison when he uh, when he was uh, running for the uh, the president for the candidacy of the pre- as a candidate of the uh, president of the United States. Now he was one of the founding members. His name was Eugene V. Debs or Eugene Victor Debs. Uh, he was a founding member of the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, five times a candidate for the Socialist Party of America. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the industrial workers of the world were communists. Correct. The man was a communist. Socialism is communism light. It's just, like I said, it's just basically the next step. If you look at what what's the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you ask a socialist today... You want a socialist society here in America. You're going to say that is correct. You have to ask them, okay, well, how are you going to come about this? Because America is a free market capitalist system. Are you going to take away their businesses? Mm -hmm. They'll probably say, well, we will have to. If you look at, let's say, the uh, insurance industry. Um, You know, the the insurance industries, those are privately run companies. Yeah. Somebody owns them. People have people have stock in them. You know, I I have uh, I have a life insurance policy, which means I have stock within that policy. So does that? If they're going to have a full blown socialist economy, I'm wondering is that what they want? Do they want a free market mixed economy? But socialism is you're you are talking about the state nationalizing the businesses, nationalizing the economy. So in order to have the state run the programs or running the companies, they're going to have to take it away from the people who own it. Right. And you're going to have to do that with a gun. Yeah. Because people are going to resist. Correct. And the pure pure version of socialism in play today, in the, in the pure form of what socialism actually is, and as what you had you know, defined it and what sort of the originator of socialism and communism, Karl Marx defined socialism as communism. And that's really what it is. Um, So the pure forms of it right now being practiced here, are a few countries that are doing it, Venezuela, Cuba, and North Korea, um, that is complete domination of the means of production. Now that's complete domination of the means of production. Now you see the collapse um, or at least the restrictions that are placed on people dramatically. 
um, and you see what happens in, in Venezuela or Venezuela, um, what's happening right there. Um, one of the negative aspects of which there are many in socialism, and I don't want to come across like we're beating up on socialism, although I, we are, um, <laughs> but I don't want to come across, if, if somebody out there listening is a socialist, God bless you. Um, I don't want it to be where we are beating up on socialists as much as trying to explain why socialism in that pure form does not work. Um, and here is the, the main reason is, one, what you said, you have to pull the, the means of production away from those who create that production, which is um, the private enterprises. And what it does is it eliminates competition, which therefore for the consumer, which would be even you, socialists, um, it eliminates your choice. It eliminates the choices that you have at your fingertips for certain products and services. So if you do not like the way a business is running their business, you can go to their competitor. And that's how businesses either get better or they just collapse. Now, I want to discuss the free market enterprise system. Um, and let's give an explanation of that. You want to give your explanation of what you see the free market enterprise system is? Free market is basically if two people, two or more people, or even one person decides, hey, I want, I know that there's a need, I know there's a need that's not being met. I'm going to create my own business. I'm going to start off small. I'm going to put in my own money. I'm going to put in my own time. If somebody wants to join me, they can join me in a partnership. You start your own business. Mm -hmm. You grow that business. You're putting in your own money, your own time. You're not working 40 hours. You're working 80 hours. Yeah. And then guess what? Your, your, your business, which is run by you, you decide the cost of the services or the actual physical product which you are creating. You're the one who makes a decision on it. Now, over time, as your, as your company expands, you need to hire workers. Well, then you hire as many people as you feel that are needed, and you decide on how much it's worth based on the market, based on the economy. If it's a low-skilled job, let's say you're grilling burgers, all right, more than likely you'll pay minimum wage plus a little extra because, hey, you want to attract some good people. You want to keep them. Mm -hmm. So you'll charge them about $12 an hour. Hey, come and flip burgers for me. Yeah. Unskilled worker comes in thinking, oh, I, I'm going to have to live with mom and dad still, but I'm going to accumulate, you know, the income that I'm making right now at $12 an hour. Right. And then over time they can go to school, whatnot. So basically, you know, they can go to school and learn their own skill, or they can eventually go work for some other company if they feel that, hey, this other company is going to pay me $15 an hour. Yeah. So the free market system is basically your means of improving your own life. Yeah. You're using your own capital, you're using your own time, your own energy, your own labor, and it's, and it's not owned by the government. So right. that's gonna that's the the non technical. Here you go. This is a basic conversation of what the free market system is. Right, and the free market enterprise is you know it was really um, I guess dis 
exemplified in um, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. He was a uh, Scottish, um, really, economist. He's the father of American economy. Um, and he more or less watched the the marketplace and that's where everything originated from all of his theories originated from it's like oh you know if you just watch the marketplace and how um people are competing against each other business owners are competing against each other for other people's for the consumer's business um which means okay um i'm selling this cloth for 12 dollars a yard but this other person is selling it for 11 dollars a yard and it's the same quality i'm gonna have to go at 1050. um or i can get a much cheaper version of the cloth and charge seven dollars because my overhead is much cheaper and so it's competing against each other for the consumer's business and one of the things that uh, I don't think socialists and so uh, socialists really understand is that you and it's called the invisible hand um, that was um, more or less demonstrated by by Adam Smith. He's the one who came up with the the term the invisible hand, which is the business owner and the consumer help each other out in the transaction although it's not really them doing it on purpose it's called supply and demand so one has a need and the other one can supply that need and so they both do each other a solid by hey here's i know that you need this and i can provide it you give me your money and you will get this service or product and that in itself is the free market system at play to where I'm going to compete with everybody else around me and the consumer will let me know if I'm doing a good job because I will have I will have clientele I will have customers and therefore I will have money in my pocket to continue my business but once I start doing a bad job or I start acting unjustly towards my customers or providing them bad service or bad products they will let me know, not by, you know, they will let me know first, like, hey, your product and service is not what it used to be. You need to up your game or we're going to go somewhere else. Um, and one of the things that Milton Friedman always talked about um, was people vote with their feet. And we're not talking about politics. We're talking about um, whether they're going to go with your service or product or not. And that means they will leave you if you're not doing a good job. And that's the beauty of the free market enterprise because it demands excellence. It doesn't demand perfection, but it demands excellence. And it demands that you pay attention to the needs of the people. Um, and it's people serving people, not the government demanding or creating a monopoly, which we'll get into later, um, and saying, okay, you have to choose this one group or only two or three groups that you get to choose from. And then uh, that, that creates a really bad system of uh, guarantees that cannot be fulfilled, or at least not fulfilled properly. Um, all right, man, let's jump to the Nordic model. Um, I wanted to jump in here because I think the most famous uh, socialist right now, which he is having some competition from a recently elected representative from New York. Um, but Bernie Sanders of Vermont, the senator from Vermont, and apparently he's going to be running for president again 
2020. Um, he said something in October of 2015, which was, we should look to countries like Denmark and Sweden, referencing them as socialist countries. Now, the next month, November, the Prime Minister of Denmark showed up at Harvard and spoke there, and he said this. He said, I know that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model with some sort of socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. So there's a lot of confusion out there or just flat out misinformation about what, what countries out there are actually socialists. You want to jump on this and we'll just jump in together on talking about these, the, the Nordic model or the, the Nordic countries out there that people say are, are socialist countries. Well, the thing I'm not sure of is, are they purposely deceiving their listeners or are they ignorant? Yeah. It's, it's one or the other because whatever it is, they're not telling the truth. Right. The Nordic countries are mixed economies. Now, do they have a heavy uh, welfare system? Yes, they do. But the problem, there's a couple things wrong with that. Now, you know, I'm going to go back and say they, they are they are a mixed economy. Their businesses are not centrally planned by the state. Now, they might have some social services like their their, their transportation or their utilities. And there are a lot of countries that are that way, that the utilities or transportation transportation will be, uh, or their insurance will be publicly owned in terms of the state. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the general economy, it's free market, it's capitalist. Right. A lot of countries are that way. Australia is that way. And, and I, I remind me, because I want to bring up something about Australia that personally affected my family. But um, you, you have free market economies. The problem is that the, the, the producers, the workers of that country, pay high taxes. Yes. By paying the high taxes, they are never, <clears throat> although the people there will live comfortably, they've got that social net, right. but they'll never get ahead. They're not going to, they can't buy some of the things that we in America purchase. Yeah. You know, Amer- American poor seem to be, they have more things than some of the rich did, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Right. They, they've got TVs, they've got microwave ovens, they've got uh, all the appliances, they've got all the appliances that, uh, that rich people would have, would have wanted uh, 100 years ago. Yeah. They have, they have computers, they have smartphones, and that's the poor. The reason why the poor in America have those is because with the competition, with the capitalist system, you have different companies making different products, and mm-hmm. they are better products, and so they can become more affordable. If you don't have a monopoly, <clears throat> companies are going to compete for somebody's for your business, so the prices are going to be lower. And the fact that our taxes here in the United States are lower than, say, the taxes, the the, end of the, the income taxes are lower than what you're going to be paying in some of the um, Nordic countries. People can afford to purchase more. People can afford to purchase material things that they want or need. Mm-hmm. And they can get ahead, and they can 
save money and they can put money in the stock markets. People leave all these other countries and come to the United States because they know that with the low taxes and with the opportunities and with the economy that we have, that you can make it big in this country. Yeah. Um, so many of these Nordic countries, although they are, they, they do have a, a market economy, the problem is, is that because their welfare system is so heavy, mm-hmm. somebody has to pay for it. And the workers pay for it. Now, Sweden, in the 70s, experimented with socialism. Yeah. And it, and it was a failure. And the people in the government were voted out of office, and they were replaced by people that chose to run the economy as a free market. Yeah. And it happened. And right now, you know, Sweden... Now, although their economy is not exploding like, say, the United States is, right? They're they're doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, these countries are doing well, um, and they do a lot of things well. Yes, they do have a a very large um, welfare state, and it's very high tax rates. Um, but one of the things that people often don't uh, pinpoint with these countries. Uh, these particularly, we're just going to stick with the Nordic countries right now, um, is they don't pinpoint what came first, the chicken or the egg, which when I say the chicken or the egg, I mean, was it wealth that came first or was it socialism that came first? You know, which one was it? Well, these countries were wealthy. Um, they started doing things like, like Sweden, um, sort of deregulating a lot of things at the turn of the 20th century. Um, particularly like it's telecommunications. Um, And that really expanded things. Um, But these countries were wealthy, and like you said, they started to mess with the economy from a socialist standpoint and had to sort of figure things out, like what worked and what didn't work. Um, And so in the 70s and 80s, yeah, there was a real, the economy really started to plummet in Sweden, and so they had to figure, okay, are we going to pull all the money away from you know the citizens and it's, it's going to be high tax rates and mass government spending, uh, i.e. welfare state, or are we going to sort of you know, come down a little bit on how we're doing things? So they had to figure that out. There are a lot of things in those countries, and as, as Bernie Sanders and other socialists like to say, uh, these countries are socialists, which they are not because they do a lot of things that socialists would think were terrible. Um, one would be that there are no minimum wage laws in these Nordic countries. Um, so the the wages are come they are agreed upon via just agreements made between unions and employers. So, uh, unions have a big say in how, how things go over there, but it's, hey, this is what these skilled workers are worth, and this is what we think that you should be paying. So the employers come to an agreement on, okay, this is what we'll pay. So there are no minimum wage laws in those countries. Um, so the government doesn't tell an employer uh, what they should be paying these employees, uh, much like when... Uh, you know, during the Obama years of saying, hey, we need to increase the minimum wage law, of which a number of counties and states actually did. They increased it to $15. Uh, 
an hour. And this is for very low skilled work, like flipping burgers, stuff like that. To where, um, and, and the problem with that is socialists don't really view, they don't really look in the, in the long term of, okay, what is, what's the negative aspect? They only look at, at the positives that come with it or that could come with it. When you increase the, the wage earnings of somebody from $7.50 to $15 an hour, automatically you think, especially just like, let's say that you're in college or you're in high school, you think, oh my gosh, that's going to be great. I can't wait to get into the workforce and make $15 an hour. That's going to be fantastic. Well, if you're spending now your two for one of what it used to be, now that you're spending so much more for one employee, guess what? You don't have enough money to hire more employees. So you have to be very selective on who you're employing. So the hyper low skilled worker who's just trying to get a job so that they can make some money and then learn as they go, well, this is a person that you could pay less and then you know build up and then over six months you realize, or three months or a year, and you're like, man, this guy is, he's he or she is always at work on time, they work really hard, they learn really fast, and you start giving them a raise. Well, with the minimum wage law, and especially if you were to jump it to $15 an hour, it eliminates the really low skilled worker from competition. So now you've removed all of those people who desperately need a job so they can better themselves. Now you're only going for the higher end of the low skilled workers or even people who are, you know, they're high school graduates or they're working through college. So now you're only going to give jobs to these people. And so it actually is detrimental to poor people um, and people who don't have a good education. So, um, and something that Milton Friedman said, and for listeners who've never heard of Milton Friedman, he was a famous um, Nobel laureate economist, uh, really the, you know, quote unquote economist of the 20th century, if you will. Um, he actually said that the minimum wage law, and this was during the 60s and 70s, that he would make this reference a lot was the minimum wage law is the most anti-Negro law on the books because it required employers to discriminate against people, people of people of color um, or maybe maybe women, um, minorities. And so it instead of giving people um, who may have been minorities or women or whoever, a leg up, which would have been their ability to say, hey, I know you're paying this white guy who's got three years of experience this amount of money. I will undercut him and I will work for you. I'll work my butt off for this amount of money. What do you say? And so therefore it created this situation where if the employer said no to this person, they were the ones who actually lost out and not the potential employee. And so that is also what the free market enterprise system is about. It's not just about uh, business owners and businesses competing against each other, but it's also about the opportunity of employees and the worker to compete against each other for jobs. And uh, so that is something that these Nordic countries continue to do, they don't allow minimum wage laws so that all now all the, the employers uh, can pick who they want to and the, 
the, cons- the workers are able to compete against each other. Another thing that these Nordic countries do that America, apparently a lot of, a lot of socialists um, and a, the Democratic Party do not like this idea, um, or at least maybe not all of the Democratic Party, but a lot of the loud voices of the Democratic Party, um, they do not like the idea of school choice, which would be the government providing a voucher system for parents to choose which school that their student will go to. Now, these Nordic countries actually do this, and they actually provide uh, voucher systems for private schools too. So there's the public schools, there's the, um, the public charter schools, there's the private schools, and so you're provided these vouchers to send your student or you send your, your child to the school that you think would be best for them. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why anybody would think that that system is is not a good system or that's not a good idea. You know, I was also thinking, do you, Dustin, think that having a minimum wage law of, let's say, $15 an hour is going to encourage and enable illegal immigration? Sorry, I took a drink of water on that one. No, <clears throat> absolutely not. Because you don't think, cause I'm, I'm sitting thinking that if a company, let's say uh, you have a California company that can't afford to pay their workers $15 an hour, okay, I'm going to hire me some illegal aliens. They'll do it for 5 bucks an hour. Correct. <clears throat> but the downside of that is that you have to pay them under the table. You have to pay them illegally. So the Which risk a lot of people do anyway. Correct, but the risk to reward situation if you get found out can be detrimental to your company. To which you can be fined, um, or you can be taken to court, um, or you can have your business shut down. So is that the risk that people want to take? Yeah, I agree that there are a lot of com- or not a lot of companies, but I think there are a lot of small businesses that do do things like that because they have to cut corners, they have to save money on their overhead in order to. Uh, continue to do business, um, but no, I don't think that it that it helps um, illegal immigrants who come over, except for the fact for those who are willing to do things illegally themselves. I'm, I'm talking about American businesses, um, if they're willing to do illegal illegal things on their terms, which uh, to me is uh, just too risky. But I think if you eliminate, if you eliminate the minimum wage law, then you're able to pay those people. You're able to pay illegal, illegal work or illegal immigrants or, or at least undocumented uh, immigrants, maybe. Or uh, you're able to pay them maybe just, well, it just depends on what the laws are. I mean, are you, maybe, maybe the law in your, your county or in your state, you know, does not allow for illegal immigrants to have a job um, with your company at all. So. Well, I do know this, that um, the Dark Ages, everybody worked for the state. That's how, that's how life was in those days. You had um, free men and slaves basically working for whoever lived in the, the kingdom, or I'm sorry, lived in the castle. When uh, the climate got a little bit warmer around the year 1000, 1000 AD, 
people were able to grow more food. Now, when they grew more food, they were able to sell some of that excess food. When they sold that excess food, they were able to gain a little bit of money, gain some capital. They had a little money left over. So they would buy a little bit more land. And they were able to create more crops. And the more crops they were able to sell, more money in their pocket. And that enabled people to, I mean, that, that was a form of a, of a capitalist system, a free market system. And that is what later led to uh, things like the Renaissance. The Renaissance occurred because, one of the reasons why it occurred was because people had all this excess money. And so they were able, you know, like some of the, uh, the new, I don't know if you want to call them the new middle class or the new rich people. These are people that were not aristocrats not necessarily those that were born into the wealth, but became wealthy themselves, either as merchants or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, people started hiring artists. They had this disposable income. I'm going to hire an artist. Make my home look nice. Make my castle look nice. That's what led to the, uh, that was one of the things that led to the Renaissance in Europe. That's also what led to people being able to run their own lives, the free market system. They were able to get away from the uh, the feudal society. Opportunity. Uh, That's why. I mean, America is is the land of opportunity. That's all people need. You know. Yeah. That's all hard work. That's all hardworking people need. And I think a lot of times uh, people may may misconstrue that idea of hardworking as. It must be labor that is strenuous. No, it just means that you are diligent in your work and you work to make it good. You make your service, you make your product, you know, something that people will want, like an artist. You know, if you're a musician and, you know, I think a lot of times maybe people don't view being a, a musician as a job. Look, I have, I have tried my hand at being a musician. And I know that it's incredibly difficult. And so we say 40 hours a week, like these musicians who are dedicated to their craft, they're spending 80 hours is nothing in a week because they are spending their time and their energy trying to create at all times and then performing and hoping to get liked, hoping to get fans. Um, and they're learning the ideas of, okay, I gotta, I gotta take care of my budget. I gotta make sure that I am marketing myself correctly. So I think a lot of times we, we only, when we say, uh, is it hard work or hardworking individuals or hardworking Americans? We're only thinking of tilling the land and it's not just about that. It's every, it's every aspect of every industry, um, that goes into play in, in, Amer- in the American system or in the, even in the global system of which there are a lot of countries that, you know, you, you trying to be a musician or, or being an artist in some of these countries that are like third world, you, you can't do it. You're just not going to do it. Um, so one of the one of the other aspects that I did want to mention, because uh, we had talked about Sweden and how um, a lot of socialists, I you know, the Bernie Sanders ilk. Uh, like to pinpoint and say, oh, well, these these Nordic countries are socialists when they're actually not. Because um, the things that the socialists here in America or 
um, the promises that you'll you'll see from Karl Marx or Lenin or, or those those people who you know Karl Marx that would write about okay it's all about the worker it's all about the poor um, when in fact like it you know it wasn't it was to make everybody poor and everybody equal. anyways that's a totally different conversation but one of the things that Sweden has and we talked about the high tax rate is the poor the the ones who make thirty seven thousand dollars or less in Sweden actually pay the highest tax rate, which is at sixty percent. So uh, they pay more than what America American socialists want to say. Okay, we're going to tax the rich, we're going to tax the wealthy, we're going to tax the one percent. They're going to carry everything. So we need to look at what Sweden's doing. We need to look at what these Nordic countries are like. Actually, friends, they're doing the opposite of what you're saying that they should be doing. Another thing that these countries are doing is that they're private, and you mentioned this, they're privatizing, they have learned to privatize a lot of industries instead of nationalize them, um, which creates the competition, which ensures that um, the economy, you know, booms under various companies and corporations within one industry instead of everybody, oh my God, we got to rely just on want uh, this one corporation and since they have a contract with the with the government they don't even have to worry about doing a good job <clears throat> postal service thank you very much um, can you imagine living in a living in an America where there is no UPS or FedEx or anything like that and you just had to rely on the United States Postal Service founding fathers uh, got that one wrong I believe that's how it was uh, in my uh, earlier days yeah it was I mean, it was. We, we, yeah. I mean, you know what? When I grew up in the 70s, we had one phone system, which was AT&T. We had, um, we had just the Postal Service. And we had, what, ABC, NBC, CBS, and uh, PBS, as well as uh, 26 and 39. Mm-hmm. That's it. You being Six 20. channels. Oh, yeah. And now, and now you have so many more things at your fingertips. And here, here is the trick. Here is the here is the issue, and this is what socialism uh, wrongly strives toward. So you have now you have more phones, you know, networks or telephone networks, telecommunication networks. You have more um, like postal services, and you have more media channels now. You have now more choices, and there are so many choices that are much better than what was just presented to you, say, 30 years ago. But there are also choices out there that are worse than what was presented to you 30 years ago. So you have really good, and you have really bad, and then you've got the middle of the road. But that's all part of competition, and a lot of times socialists want to We've got to go towards perfection. And perfection is not attainable. It's just not, that's not the way of human nature. We are not perfect. We can't do everything perfectly. Um, and so we have to get out of that mindset of we need a perfect system. Like, ladies and gentlemen, that's not going to happen. Ever. We can only compete against each other to make each other better. I mean, I think one of the easiest ways to understand competition in the workplace is watch the NFL or watch the NBA or watch the MLB or watch sports in general. Watch, uh, just, just, just see like how much better some athletes 
are than the other. But then you also watch the these kids that come up through college and you see how they continue to grow. And there are some who want to work really, really hard to be the best. And there are some that are just fine with getting a contract in the NBA. So uh, did you know, I, I didn't know this, and there's a lot of things that I don't know, but I found out that they that Sweden actually, um, not only have they privatized a lot of things, but they also privatized the pension fund. Um, yeah. That is that is something interesting um, to do because it it removes the absolute guarantee of you getting a pension. So it's all based on how the economy is doing, which is a really yeah. good idea. And I think a lot. I think that's something that I mean, a lot I of states need to about do. that. Uh, uh, Reason Reason Magazine and John Stossel, who's a contributor to Reason Magazine, um, interviewed. Um, this uh, this guy from Sweden and Johan is it Ho- Johan Norberg? It might might have been. He had like a special. Yeah. To count to counter what PBS, PBS uh, came out with this idea that you know that this that the people of Sweden are happy, they're in a socialist economy, and and this guy comes out and goes, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, that is not true. I live in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you exactly how it is, and he he discussed the pension system, how it was privatized. You know, the, the Social Security system here in the United States is not privatized. It's yeah. run by the federal government. And they keep talking about how they're going to run out of money, you know, by the time um, most of us uh, are at our retirement age. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, that's, and that's one of the things I do want to hit on is the things that America is doing too that is sort of detrimental in its, in its social, uh, in its social programs. Um, the health you know, much, the, much of these social programs began under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Correct, and you know, and, and he, and well, you know, all he did, he he did it as a reaction to the uh, the Great Depression. Right. So what happened was Herbert Hoover, who was the president at the time of the Depression, implemented these policies that only made the Depression even worse. Well, Franklin Roosevelt came in. And he basically just expanded on the policies that that Hoover did. Right. But he had the, he had those little fireside chats. Say, look, you know, we're, we're we're gonna you know we're gonna make things better for you. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. Everything's gonna be okay. Well, the economy never grew. Unemployment right. was around twenty five percent. Things stayed stagnant. There was even another recession in nineteen thirty eight. But the economy of the United States. Even though other nations in the world had gotten out of the depression, the United States was still, the economy was still depressed up until the Second World War. Yeah. And so that's what was his is social, so. His socialist policies did not help. His yeah. socialist policies prolonged the recession. Correct. And interestingly enough, the. Before these social programs started going into play, and I'll, 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 I'll jump to my, my next point real quick, but before those social programs, and that's something I would really like to hit on, is the misconception that um, Franklin Roosevelt saved the country from the Great Depression. Uh, that is, that's a fallacy. Uh, is the, the economy was actually in the process of recovering. Um, and once these 
social program started going into play, it just blew up, blew up the situation to where all of a sudden it, it started going in the opposite direction and making the depression much worse. But we'll, we'll go over that uh, in some other episode. Uh, one of the things that has, has been mentioned is the healthcare system. And I just want to touch on this, not really in my notes, but the healthcare system in these, these countries like uh, Canada, like Sweden and, and other places that have heavy welfare um, systems and that they have nationalized sort of the healthcare system, um, it's called waiting. It's called if you have a disease or if you have a brain tumor that needs to be operated on immediately or if you are pregnant and need to get in and have your baby, they will tell you, well, you'll just have to wait in line. Uh, you'll have to wait until your turn. And, and so this is a pretty common thing, um, which does not happen in America with its privatized healthcare system because you're able to go wherever it is that you need to go in a you know in a moment of an of an emergency or you can you know make that uh, schedule that appointment with your doctor personally and you're not having to go through a, a bureaucratic system of you know people saying well uh, we'll fit, we'll let you know if your if your disease or if your sickness or if your issue is of the importance that it actually is so that's uh that's something to keep in mind. Um, there are people just and and I when I went to when I went to Scotland uh, was it last year or no year before um, that was one of the complaints that I discussed with somebody who was um, well actually we were flying into London she was from London and she's like that's one of the issues here is um, People were just, you know, they're just sitting around waiting to get in and get checked on or have their, you know, their sickness, uh, you know, fixed or, you know, just to see a doctor and they're waiting forever. Um, and it's also detrimental to the doctors themselves. And she was like, a lot of them are saying, no, we're not going to accept the quote unquote, like Medicaid version of like the UK Medicaid version. Like a lot of those doctors are opting out. Of, of the of the government based you know I guess payer system um, so now you're you're running into not very much competition and the competitions that's in there that your your stuff is being paid for by the government are the lower end doctors and last time I checked you want a doctor who actually knows what they're doing um, because what what that ends up doing is now the only ones who are getting taken care of, like really taken care of, are the rich, the ones who don't have to worry about having their stuff taken care of by the government. So all these things that socialists are saying, hey, this is gonna benefit the poor, this is gonna benefit the middle class, actually it has the opposite effect because rich people are rich people and they don't have a lot of worries because they can pay for everything that they need. And there's nothing wrong with that, but don't you know perpetuate the problem with um, making it to where now you know poor people are worse off than they were previously. Um, something I want to want to jump on with the Sweden thing, um, and this is sort of a study in human nature, um, and this is this is what happens when the government gives too much away. 
um, in the early 2000s. So they did a study that of, of Europe, and Sweden was one of the, and it still is, is one of the health one is one of the healthiest countries in Europe, but they had the highest sick leave in Europe, um, and so it was to the point where 10 percent of Swedish workforce and, and workers were on leave at any given time. That's 10% of, of the workforce. So I was reading a New York Times article and, and this is what it says. It says under the, and this was out in 2002 that it was written. It says under the Swedish system, a person does not need a doctor's excuse until the eighth day out and can take up to a week off six times in a year before employers can act to move the person onto government support. The first day of sick leave is unpaid. The next two weeks are paid at the 80% rate by the employer. And then the government takes over. The government pays a benefit equal to 80% of a person's salary during sick leave, no matter how long, and an additional 10% in what is called, quote unquote, contract insurance for the first three months. This public outlay has grown to $5.3 billion annually from just over $2 billion in 1998. Um, and it later said, in 1998, Prime Minister Gordon Person increased the government's benefit from 75% to 80% of salary. And the average number, and this is, this is the study in human nature right here, and the average number of days spiked upward each year thereafter from 11.1 in 1997 to 24.4 in 2001. So even good people like you and I, if we are given too much to where we, the government says we are going to pay you whether you work or not, there is going to be an increase in people who will not work or like this situation will take those sick days, even when they're not sick. And so when somebody comes in like Ocasio-Cortez of New York and they come in with this Green New Deal saying that the government will pay you regardless if you work or not, there is going to be a massive increase, not everybody, but there's going to be a massive increase in people who will not work because there's no need. They're getting paid anyways. AOC is already proving that she's not quite the economic genius she thinks she is. Yeah. Um, with the, the whole Amazon yeah. he, uh, the headquarters to HQ2. And she made an interesting quote that said that the three or four billion dollar tax incentives that were going to be given to Amazon can be used to pay for infrastructure. And people are like, no, you moron. It means that they're not going to have to pay that tax. It doesn't mean that we have that $3 billion or $4 billion. She's sitting thinking that that 3 to $4 billion is just sitting around. Yeah. <laughs> and that money can be used for infrastructure. They're saying, no, it just means that they can operate their business. They won't pay us the 3 to $4 billion, but with all the, the jobs that they're going to be creating and you know, those workers are going to be spending money themselves, and that's yeah. going to generate tax revenue for all the businesses, for the people that are going to be spending money. Yeah. 
Yeah, she cost New Yorkers uh, 25,000 jobs. Yeah. So, and that is, well, that's a totally different story, which I would love to get on to. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, will have, we will have to discuss. I do, I do want to mention one uh, personal note about, uh, uh, you know, these mixed economies. Um, I have a cousin who lived in Melbourne. And, you know, he, he, did, he did fairly well. His home would be considered a, you know, it was considered a, it was about 800 some thousand dollars Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in that great of a part of, uh, of town. It was, it, was a, it was a decent part of town. It was just a residential suburb. Sold it for 800 some thousand. But the problem is, is that taxes are so high. He told me, his very words were, if you work in Australia, you are basically working for the government. You cannot get ahead. And he got so tired of it that when he sold his home, he moved to Lebanon, which uh, is, has a far more free market system. Their philosophy is more of laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of nations they have their banking system in Lebanon because they've got. Now you can pretty much do whatever you want with your capital in any in any means that you want. It's not it's not a it's not regulated, and uh, you know they don't have. You know I've been there. I mean they don't have the best uh, public transportation or, or medical facilities or anything like that. But you know if uh, if you have money, you can live like a king over there. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, he just got up took all his money with him and he left uh, Australia. Now I've always wanted to go to Australia, not to live, but to visit. Hey, uh, is is uh, that your Australia story because I made a note to make sure that you mention it. Is that your Australia story? That that is my Australia story. Yes. Yeah, I I went to Australia to go look at the possibility of living there uh, prior to meeting um, my wife and uh, uh, beautiful country, beautiful people, but uh, way too dependent on the government yeah and you know and you know the government the, the police they randomly pull people over all the time to test to see if you've been uh, drinking and driving really? you don't even in the middle just... of the day you don't even have to be weaving they'll just oh i'm just gonna pull this guy over and they'll yeah. pull you over and that happened to me twice not to me but to, to the person that was driving twice huh. they just pulled it they pulled us over and we sat there for about 20, 30 minutes while they did the test, breathalyzer test. And we hmm. hadn't been drinking. We were just driving around. That's crazy. Very, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very intrusive. That's very intrusive. That's crazy. Very. So uh, I was like, uh, you know, I love Australia. I, I, I love the people of the land, love the location because there's a lot of adventurous places you can go. But I was like, no, I, 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 I wouldn't want to live like this. Yeah. Neither would I. Hey, and um, speaking of not wanting to live like this, I don't want our listeners to think that we're going to go on forever. We're already over the hour mark, um, and I've got a number of notes, and I know that you do too. Let's turn this into part two next week, shall we? Let us. Let us. All right. Let's end, as we always do, on a scripture. Uh, This is one that you had mentioned that we should do, and I'll go ahead and read it. This is Matthew 25, 14 through 30, a bit long. But this is the servants with the talents, talents with being money. 
Uh, so it says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had two had received uh, had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so I will now give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten more, some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, throw this useless servant in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I thought Jesus was a socialist. <laughs> well, that is proof there. That is not the case. So... Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Jesus is all about the, the free market enterprise, man. He's all about um, making sure that you're doing what you can with what you've been provided. And look, we've all got brains. We've all got abilities. Uh, we have to use them. We have to cultivate them. And one of the primary aspects of being successful in anything is being diligent in it. And being diligent means you work hard and you perfect what it, whatever it is that you're going for. Um, and so if you're a socialist, you may be like that. You may, you know, work really hard and you may, you know, you may, you know, spend all your time and, and effort in, in benefiting others and, and getting better at what you're doing. And you most likely see and reap the benefits of that. However, you need to understand also that the pure idea of socialism and the socialism that is being perpetuated here in the States is anti that. It is pro, you just take it easy and the government will take care of you because we're going to take all the money from those people who are working hard and are diligent. And by the way, we are going to be taking a lot away from the poor too because that's just what ends up happening. It just happens. Um, and so, yeah. You need to know what your ideology is is perpetuating, whether it's capitalism, communism, socialism, uh, libertarianism, 
whatever. Um, just they need to know what it is that they're that they're going after. And if you're fine with, hey, um, we need to demonize the one percent, or we need to take from those who are working and give it to those who are not, or go the Robin Hood route of take from the rich and give to the poor. Okay, um, that's that's your call. Um, you won't find the sons of history agreeing with that, um, but it is something that we highly encourage you to figure out what it is that you're, um, what you believe, and whether you actually believe it or if it's just mere indoctrination. So, uh, Alan, what do you say for the final word? Uh, final word is, is that this country will never be a socialist country. <laughs> and that is the final word, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you know who he was looking at when he said that? Do what? You know who President Trump was looking at when he said that? No. He was looking at, at um, they, they were saying that either he was looking at AOC or Bernie Sanders, but most likely AOC. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so shall I tell them where they can find us? Oh, yes, and go ahead and uh, mention our recent videos that went up. Oh, yeah, we had a couple of recent videos. We had the 30-some-minute interview of uh, Colonel Charles McGee of the Tuskegee Airmen, and we also had the long-awaited episode two on our American Revolution series. Yep. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. That's right. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to, uh, you can go to our website, the one that Alan just so kindly mentioned, and check out the videos. We've got them up. Uh, episode two the, on the American Revolution series, which discusses the Declaration of Independence in which I play the role of Thomas Jefferson and my good friend Alan Joaquin plays the role of John Adams. And we talk about how the Declaration of Independence came about, how it was written, and we throw a lot of... It's really the Declaration of Independence um, in dialogue. But along with that... Um, the thoughts behind it, as well as uh, bits and pieces from Thomas Jefferson's rough draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which a lot of people don't know about. Neither did I before I uh, we started doing the research on that. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, if you want to go check out that military interview, and that's actually what the tab is, just click on the tab military interview on the website and you will be able to watch the interview with Colonel Charles McGee, uh, which is a delightful interview in itself, uh, which there will be more to come. And that is going to wrap up our show. We're excited, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks, listeners. Spread the word. Remember, subscribe and rate and review if you haven't already. Are you going to say anything like you're typical? God bless and nah. good luck or something like that? Nah, I'll let you do it. I'm not going to do it. Well, I wasn't. Well, I'm not going to do it.
All right. Nobody's going to yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say that we are here to educate and entertain, and God bless you all. There we go. You actually summed it all up, which was what I was hoping you would do. Yes, I will. All right. See you guys.